Dear friends, let us now turn to God's holy word for our worship, for our praise, for our meditation, and for our instruction this evening in righteousness. Let us turn to the book of the Revelation and the chapter 3. The book of the Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we read in the verse 1 of chapter 1. We turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we read verses 1 to the verse 6. Again, this is the word of God. Let us come and let us hear his holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to truly receive his word this night, for the good of our souls and for the glory of his name. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is God's Holy Word, thus far the reading of God's Holy Word, and we pray that the Lord will bless that public reading of his most holy word. Let us pray, let us draw near, and seek his gracious help now to open up his word to our hearts and our understanding, and to apply it to our needful souls. Let us draw near. Well, this evening, once again, we return to our regular consecutive systematic expository ministry going through the book of the Revelation. And we arrive in these verses, verses 1 to 6 of the chapter 3 this evening. And we consider this church here at Sardis. And uh, let me just say just a few things, I suppose some of which you're getting used to me saying, but it's important that I emphasize them once again about the book of the Revelation, things we need to remind ourselves every time we come to this book. The entire purpose of this book, firstly, is to reveal. It is given in the very name itself, the book of the Revelation. Perusia, or the unfolding, it is the apocalypse, and that word is not to be used as in common parlance today when people speak of apocalyptic events, what they mean are extraordinary events. Apocalypse simply means the unveiling. And these things that we are reading and studying here are the things which are to come to pass. As I said, it is the book of the Revelation. You notice in chapter 1, the very first verse tells us, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Of course, only God can tell us the future. God has by his angel and through the Lord Jesus Christ given these things unto John. 
that he may describe the events concerning these last days. And we are in the last days, up until the, from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, up until his final coming marks the final epoch, the last days, the coming of the Son of Man shall be suddenly as a thief in the night. He says in the last chapter of this book, Lo, I come quickly, and that word means suddenly. Now, at the end of this cycle, and remember, as I said, the book of the Revelation has seven cycles in it. The number seven features very much in this book. Now, all of those cycles are showing us the same thing, or things leading up to the final event. And again, at the close of this first cycle, which is in chapter 1 through to chapter 4. You notice in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Of course, the cycles continue. You notice the the close of the first cycle, well, the things are continuing to be revealed, but, as we said, from different angles. Again, I use the illustration. It's like perhaps going to your house from here. You could take a picture of various things on one journey, and on the second journey, you can take pictures of something else, or you're watching a sports match, and you see a goal scored, and you can see it from different angles. Different things are being emphasized, but it's the same terminus, if you like. It's the same end. And each time there is judgment day. And each time we see throughout these cycles a God-hating world. And we see the true church under tribulation. And we see churches that are not, certainly the harlot, as we will see much later on in our studies, of course not in these seven churches, you will see a wicked church. And many of us believe that to be Rome. Many of us believe that to be the false, the empty church. It could not just be Rome, but it might be uh, those churches that are not true. We know we are reminded there will be many false teachers in the last day, not only Rome, but there will be the charismatic movement. There will be the Mormons. There will be the Jehovah's Witnesses. There will be all kinds of deceptions. And there will even be many that will say that there are the Christ. And what we see is a God-hating world, and we will see a charlatan church time and time again. Now, while the Lord had to, and he did right here to, Seven literal churches. Remember, these are all representative of the churches down through the millennia, up until the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all representative in some way or another of the true church in the gospel age. We mustn't forget that because at one time, a church may look like the church at Ephesus or the church at Sardis or even the church at Laodicea depending on 
what is going on in that church, depending on the circumstances, depending on the people, depending on the not just the geographical situation, but maybe the political situation, maybe even the economic situation. And times when the world seems to wax worse and worse, there are times of revival too. So the book is revealing things that will occur up until the end of the age. But again, as we thought, chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ would have us to see that he is walking amidst the lampstands, amidst the churches. What a comfort that is. But he is also, as we said in chapter 4, on the throne. As John sees him in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he is upon the throne. And that means he's governing, he's ruling, and he alone is worthy to unloose the seals. Now again, I said seven is a very prominent number. Seven signifying complete or whole. The lamb has seven eyes, seven horns, and so on. And the book, as we've seen, has seven cycles. They're all, as we said, synchronous, giving us things from different perspectives, different views. And then again, we have seen that to each of these seven churches, there are seven things that are pointed out. The structure is the same. We've been seeing that, haven't we, as we've been going through. The first is there's an address to the church. We'll see that once again tonight to the church here in Sardis, chapters 3, verses 1 to 6. And then we'll see one of Christ's distinct titles or self-designations that he gives to himself that we also see in chapter 1. And it's repeated here to each church. And it's specifically tailored to that church. And once again, you will see, I trust, the significance of the title in which he introduces himself to this church at Sardis. He will have them be reminded that he has the seven spirits. And we'll see the significance of that this evening. And then we'll see the Lord's commendation to the church. And there is a little commendation to this church because there are a few faithful. And then we'll see the Lord's condemnation to this church. And then there's a solemn warning, which we've already read of. And then there is an exhortation Sixthly, to heed the things, the admonition to this church. And then seventhly, the promise of an everlasting blessing if that exhortation is obeyed, if it's heeded by the church members. Again, it reminds us as we come to another church, the church is not perfect, is it? Down through the ages, it's, it's certainly not perfect. There is no perfect church. Even the church at Philadelphia, although there was no condemnation to them generally, of course, they're all sinners still. But there's no perfect church. But once again, as we will see, as in this letter here, whatever the Lord says is an issue must be overcome. And true believers will overcome. Why? Because they have Christ's Spirit in them. So firstly, notice the address to the church at Sardis. Verse 1. And unto the angel of the church at Sardis write. Now we know once again that the angel 
is the minister of the church. We don't, I trust, need to spend much time over that. There was no literal angel that walked into the church, and it would be an absolute bizarre thing for the apostle to write a written letter to a heavenly being. They are the Lord's ministers. That would be a very strange thing. But as we'll see, these angels are his ministers which he holds in his right hand. And that is a reminder and a comfort to true ministers who are insufficient. Every time we stand up for the task, we must be reminded that we are the Lord's ministers, but we are in his hand. And we go in his stead and in his strength. Now, having dealt this, first of all, the, the address there to the church at Sardis, we notice, and bearing in mind that it is the minister's responsibility to convey the truth, whatever Christ has expressed, what he has said, he must herald, the word kerugma, he must herald that truth. It is essential that he does, otherwise blood will be upon his hand. We know from Ezekiel, don't we? If the one who is a watchman does not warn the city, blood shall be upon his hand. Solemn responsibility to be those who deliver God's word. We must not only deliver it, but we must live it out ourselves. And as we'll think about tonight, sadly, even ministers, if their lives are not filled with the Spirit, they can become sort of dead, if you like, and that can filter down to the church and have terrible consequences upon the church of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, let us notice one of Christ's distinct titles that he uses specifically here to this church at Sardis, verse 1b. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, let's first of all deal with these seven spirits of God. Do you remember we saw this much earlier in chapter 1? He that hath the seven spirits of God. We saw it in chapter 1, but now it's mentioned again. What is this? Well, it is. What we could say here are these seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit. Remember, seven is a picture of full, is a picture of complete. That's what is being emphasized. And if you turn to Isaiah 11, you notice one of the ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ, before he came into the world, one of the things that he was endued with, was a full measure of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he is God, but remember God was manifest in the flesh. And remember how pictured at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then in Isaiah 11, we notice there are seven features of the Holy Spirit, which will be upon Christ. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now, there should be no deliberation as to who that is, because we know even from the book of the Revelation that this is Jesus Christ. He would come from the line of Jesse, and a branch 
shall grow out of his roots. Now notice these seven aspects, the fourfold, or should we say the sevenfold ministry of the Lord by his spirit. The spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon him. Secondly, the spirit of wisdom. Thirdly, an understanding. Fourthly, the spirit of counsel. And fifthly, and of might. Sixthly, the spirit of knowledge. Seventhly, and of the fear of the Lord. All of these features of the Holy Spirit are Christ's. And remember what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9. He that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I know it's very hard for us to get our minds wrapped around the Trinity. And and our finite minds can't explain the infinite. God. Who can explain God? Who can explain him? We can't. But we know it's true. We know God is one, yet he's in three persons. Did he not say, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit was hovering over the waters. There in creation. Now here's the thing. He that hath the seven spirits of God. This is none other than Christ. As we see those designations there in Isaiah 11. But you know, here's the thing. As we look at this church, you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit, but sin in our lives can grieve the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there can then be a barrenness in our lives. Remember what David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And often, when we are struggling on in sin, or we are coveting something, and there is some besetting sin, how hard we find it to pray. And it's like there's a cloud over us. If we haven't confessed our sin, we have grieved the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby he is sealed unto the day of redemption. And it seems that this church has by and large grieved the Holy Spirit. There's a deadness, as we have read. There are some, and were it not of these faithful people in the church, the witness and the life of the church, were it not of them, there'd be nothing. There are those that are walking worthy. Few of them, verse 4, but not many. And the Lord is addressing this church who himself gives his spirit to his people and to his ministers. Do you see that? Now, we come to the second part. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what are the seven stars? I said to you just a moment ago, we've seen it already. Notice verse 20 in chapter 1. And the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which we've already said, the angels are the ministers. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So these seven stars are his angels, his ministers. And his ministers ought to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. Romans 8 verse 9. And so is every believer. But again, he is a serious responsibility upon the minister. The ministry of God's word, sadly, you need to pray for ministers. When the ministry goes down, it affects the church, doesn't it? And uh, we need spirit-filled ministry. And what is that? It's the truth, but it's the truth bought by the unction of the Holy Spirit. This is why we, we need ourselves as ministers to watch our own lives, says Paul, and our doctrine, that we may save ourselves and others, that is, save ourselves from a wicked world, that we might be a help and a blessing to others. And the Lord is addressing the church and the minister here and everyone saying, I am the one that has the full measure of the Spirit. And I am the one who holds his ministers in my hand. And it's opposite to this church that is in great, great need. And we'll consider this evening. Now you'll notice we have thirdly the Lord's Commendation. There are things to commend, but very little in this church. Now I want you to notice, what are the first thing that we see here? I know thy works. against that word Edo. It's an intimate knowledge that thou hast a name. Well, the church has a name. Maybe once it could be said, the church was well-known, a well-respected church. You know, there are churches that we know up and down the land that have been well-known. They have a name. But by and by, they don't live up to that name. By and by, things begin to die. Because, of course, believers die. But, you know, you can't, as it were, infuse life into people. Some churches are looking for the same minister that died 30 years ago. You've heard that kind of story before. And of course, you can, it's, it's wrong to look for a replica, isn't it, of a pastor. It's also wrong to, to um, you know, try to imitate everything others do, that there are certain things that we should imitate. But friends, we have to personally walk with the Lord, don't we? And what is lacking in this church, this church has a name that thou livest. Now maybe others are looking from the outside and everything seems to be good. This church has had a, a good reputation. This church has, in, the, in its history, and we know some churches have tremendous names. But then you go back years later and you realize it's not the church it was. And then we read, and are dead. Now, this is not true of everyone because you come down to the verse 4. 
because there are some that are faithful. But it seems by and large, many of these people have almost died out or they're dying. Because he says here, strengthen that which remains so that it doesn't die. So they're not fully dead, if you like. But many of them are on the brink of it. Notice how he tells them how they are to, verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. There are things that are ready to die in some of these believers. They're almost died out spiritually. Some areas of their life, the pittering away, they have a name, as it were, that they're alive. Maybe they're past, or maybe others see it, but Christ sees everything, doesn't he? He sees everything. And it seems they had some legacy, some reputation. It was a church that was very much awake, very much alive, but now not so, but aren't dead. Now before we get to the negative, they're not all spiritually dead or dying. Notice verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. The idea of garments here being sodded or defiled has to do with our traversing through this world. You know, Paul tells us to be unspotted. And James tells us to be unspotted from this world. To be undefiled. To daily, as it were, wash our garments. As we confess our sins, as we walk with the Lord. Of course, he's not looking for sinless perfection in the church. But he says there are some, there are some, and thank the Lord for those people. Those people who are faithful. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He's not saying in love of themselves, but the work of grace is what makes a man worthy. None of us are worthy. But look. There's life in them. They're not dead. Now, of course, they are to bear fruit, but not by themselves. How? By the Spirit of God. Remember, who has the seven spirits. That's your help. That's my help. The same Lord Jesus said, Without me, ye can do nothing. You see, we're being brought back to Christ. In this very exhortation here, we need him. So there's a commendation. These people still have life. And how important that is. Because very often it's by the witness of others that the church is kept. Isn't it? And others are kept. Now I know it's, it's true very often. There are always just a few people sometimes in a church who are the dependable ones. The ones you know are going to be there. These people are alive to God. They pray. They are the ones that are there at the services. And uh, they devoted to him. Always the first ones there. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you see in people's lives, and I don't mean to be judgmental. I know some people are late at times, but some people are always late. As if it's such a drudgery to come to church. You hardly see them at the prayer meeting. 
What does that indicate? It's a slog for them. There's no real life. It's all a pretense. They're dead. You see, Sardis is a lampstand. But many of them are dying out, as it were. The fire of the Spirit is not in them, it seems. There's very little. He says, strengthen. What does he say? Verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Or the little that you have, strengthen it before it dies. Continue in practicing what you should do. That's the sense. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we never regret coming to a church meeting, I hope. We always find something. Whether it's the hymns, prayer of others, the preaching of God's word. But we never regret it. And as you press on, as you do your doing, you will be strengthened. It's interesting, David in Psalm 119, if you believe David, as many of us do, did pen Psalm 119. We can't be, say that with absolute surety, but the very last verse of the Psalm 119, how David asks of the Lord these very things. He speaks of himself as going astray, like a lost sheep. And then what does he say in this verse that closes? I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. I carry on keeping your commandments. You see, we've got no right to ask for God's help if we don't keep his commandments, if we don't walk in his ways. It's hypocrisy, isn't it? He says, I've gone astray, but now I I continue to do the things that I should do, and as I do, the Lord draws near. That's the sense. So often people are very few to be faithful in the church. And I say, if you are, carry on being faithful because you are an encouragement and a strength to other people. And they need to see that witness. And often a a church can go out if there's nobody faithful anymore, or very few. So in verse 4, he describes these faithful people. There are a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. That is, they've not been tainted with the world, and the things of the world, with sin, defiling things within and without. The garments are their lives, and their godliness in life, as they seek to walk in principled obedience to Christ. You know, to walk worthy and to, to keep one's garments unspotted is not just to say something like this, you know, Pastor, oh, I know that thing was very wrong. I'm very sorry I shouldn't do it. But that you turn from it. You know, it's all very well confessing your sin, but then you've got to forsake it. And God gives strength. You know, I I hear people sometimes, I can't do it. I just don't have the strength. Well, you're looking to yourself, and that's wrong. You should be looking to Christ, who by his Spirit, and who has the Spirit in full measure, 
will strengthen. There's no life in you apart from Christ. You see that? Christ is our strength. And we stop making excuses. Yes, we we confess our sin. And we say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But without Christ, we can do nothing. We need him. He is the life. He is the life of the church. And we are called, friends. What has God called us to? He's not just called us to heaven. But he's called us to walk worthy. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation of the calling wherewith you are called. Now who gives you the strength to do that? God. His Spirit. Doesn't Paul tell us that in Ephesians 3? How he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than we can think or ask. How? By his Spirit that works effectually in us. Yes. And so it is as we walk with Christ. Verse 20 of Ephesians 3 Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That's his spirit. And we therefore need to be utterly reliant and dependent. You see, the problem with this church is it had a name. And it was counting on its name and it was looking to its name. And it was becoming probably, so many do, proud. Or we go to such and such a church, you know. You can almost hear the thinking, can't you? And we've got to be very careful, friends. You know, we might even, I'm not saying we have a name amongst churches, but what if we do? You've got to be very careful. We don't want a name. We want Christ to be our strength. We want Christ to be our help. We don't want to take confidence, oh, I go to that church, I'm under that minister's ministry. That's dangerous. Without Christ, you and I can do nothing. I must remind you that as a preacher here tonight, I need your prayers for the preaching, without which I can do nothing. We need Jesus Christ. We need his spirit. Now, fourthly, we move now to the condemnation. And it's described... Here, as those who are like dead, almost like dead wood in the church. I know thy works, thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. By and large, although this church existed, friends, many of the people appeared to be dead, spiritually speaking. Of course, they were breathing, living, and they could hear. But, you know, as far as spiritual things went, there was little life. This is why he says, and be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Not everything has died in you. Certain things are there, but many things are about to die. And he says, notice we come to the warning now. Although this church has some life, he says, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. And this is a warning. You say, well, is he looking for perfection? Well, the word here, perfect, doesn't mean that we should be perfect. 
But there is a, a major defect. We know it, Job was described as a perfect and upright man. Job 1 verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. Did it mean that he lived a life of sinless perfection? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that if Job sinned, he confessed his sin, he was right with God. There wasn't a major defect. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read these words, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. It doesn't mean to say you're going to be perfected, but that there will be nothing lacking, that you will be taught the full counsel of God from the Word of God. Now, there is something seriously lacking, wanting from these church members. It wasn't that they had poor teaching, because look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. They've heard, they've received. It's not like there's a lack of teaching in this church. It's not like there's been a lack of zeal from the minister and maybe even others. There had been godly members there before. Remember all you've seen, in fact, here and heard. You see, the problem here is this church were resting on its laurels. They were, you could say, living on fumes. You know, there's nothing in the petrol tank. They were living on past memories. But there was no personal walk with the Spirit of God. That's what was lacking. That essence, that fire, that life, which only the Spirit of Christ can infuse into a man's life. And why is that absent? Sin. Sin is always the reason. Notice what he says. Thou hast a few that have not defiled their garments. In other words, some of you, many of you, have. The tender plants of grace, my friends, cannot grow in a heart full of weeds of sin. You hear what I'm saying? Grace and the Holy Spirit cannot abide in a heart that is tainted with the world. Never will. If you were to read the Song of Solomon, we read how our Lord wants the beloved's garden fresh and fair. No weeds, no sin. You can't have it. He wants the whole heart. That's what was lacking here. This church was resting on its laurels. It had had a name, and it was satisfied with that. But it seemed very little spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is grieved. 
He that hath the seven spirits. He that has, he that is Christ, the Spirit, the Son of God. He that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. So what a danger just to have a name. And to take comfort in a name. And pride in a name. And to ignore the need of the Holy Spirit. In our lives. What folly. After all the Lord said without me you can do nothing. You see the Lord. While men might look at a name. And drive past the church and say my what a wonderful place. The Lord knows what's in every heart. Whether his spirit is at work in the hearts of his people. He sees the hearts of men. He sees whether there's devotion or not. He sees whether you love him or you love the world. And that's why he says here, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. The Lord is not fully departed. And he says that are ready to die. Those good things, those spiritual things that you're doing, strengthen those things that remain. Continue on in them and encourage each other to do these things. He says, watch effectively and pray. Be watchful. We are to watch. We are to pray. Why? Because the flesh is weak. Spirit is willing. We can become, you've heard of the proverbial frog in the pot. Have you not? You can put a frog in a pot and put it on the stove. And you slowly, please don't do this, you slowly turn up the heat. And the frog, it doesn't realize it's being boiled to death. We can become like that. We can get used to certain things. And then eventually the frog's dead. And that's how the Christian is. You allow things of the world to come into your life. You accommodate sin. You silence conscience. Eventually you're dead, my friends. Conscience becomes seared. Paul says many have seared their consciences like with a hot iron. You put a hot iron on your skin. First time it hurts. Second time you hardly feel it because the skin's dead. And so it is the heart becomes more dead to the things of God. You know, you can go through the motions. You, you can even have this non-existent life. You can have, as Paul said to Timothy about the church there at Ephesus, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You can just go along and go through the motions, but not be engaged, not receive the ministry. There's a whole difference, isn't it, between hearing. The Lord said, take heed to how you hear. For by the measure that ye hear, it shall be given unto you. So we have to really take heed. We have to be alive to the word. You know, we're listening for our own souls. We don't listen. Or I hope that guy is listening to the sermon, or him or her. We're listening for our own souls. We're coming before God. And then in the life, how do we practice it? Is there a zeal for God? Because that, all of that is sowing to the Spirit. Remember what Paul said 
to the Galatians. He says there in Galatians 6, he said, But let every man prove his own work, then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that be taught in the word communicate, or give unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Sowing to the Spirit. There's a man, he values the preaching of the Word. And he sees it's right to not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. There's a man who uses what he has. Remember what Paul says? How we ought to live by the gospel and how we appreciate that food for our souls. Well, that's, that's all part of sowing to the Spirit, isn't it? It's all part of giving that which is necessary and for the glory of God. Maybe say something else, where we're living with the world, there will not be the fruits of the Spirit in the life. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Well, we're told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And if there's none of those things, we have to say we've truly grieved the Spirit, or maybe we're not saved after all. We have to make sure those things are there. Now, let us seek to uh, come closer to conclusion now. The Lord's people are to be alive to the things of God. If we have been born again, we're awakened to the fact that this world is a sinking ship, as I often say. And our lives are quickly passing before us, and soon we shall all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. And of course, all of God's true people will overcome because they have His Spirit, each and every one of them. But so many, and we need to ask the question, let me say this, the church, every one of the members here had to examine themselves, and so must we. I don't know the reasons why. I suppose we could only conjecture why some of these things happen. But, you know, we all need to examine our own lives. Are we sowing to the Spirit? Is there life? There were those perhaps not wanting to be inconvenienced for the Lord's service because they were more preoccupied with trying to make a comfortable life here on earth? Maybe. Well, many of them went to church. Certainly looked good to the passerby. But the Lord sees everything, doesn't he? It's interesting, this church, there was no persecution there. Now often, persecution will come because of righteousness. And remember what the Lord said, Blessed are ye when men, when ye are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, it may well be, we don't know, that because some of these people were making so many compromises with the world, 
that they were not persecuted. William Hendrickson comments on this church and he says, Sardis was a very peaceful church. It enjoyed peace, but it was the peace of the cemetery. Christ tells these dead church members that they must wake up and remain awake and must make firm the rest of the things that are on the verge of death. Quite right. Says the lamp on the stand is beginning to burn more and more dimly. Soon the tiny flame will have been completely extinguished. Yes, there were forms of worship and ceremonies, maybe religious customs and things going on, but a lot of it was just dead. The essence was gone. And so it is so with so many today who go to church, but they don't live out the Christian life, you know. Some people, they survive, they reserve Just a little bit of spiritual life for one or two hours on the Lord's Day, but the rest of the day, you wouldn't know they're a Christian. That's not the Christian life. We need to ask, is there prayer? Is there joy? Is there trust in the Lord? Is there even suffering? Because that's the mark that we are the Lord's. Is there a desire and a love to be with the saints? John tells us that these are marks of the true Christian. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We ought to be fervent. Fervent in everything. Think of those in Stephanus' house who are described as being addicted to the ministry of the saints. They love to have fellowship. They love to open up their homes and feed the saints and take care of God's people. If these things become arduous for us, we must ask, is the Spirit really in our hearts, in our lives? He says, I've not found thy works perfect before God. In other words, there's something lacking. He's not looking for perfection here. Now, let me just say this. As you notice, there is a warning, as we'll see now, a solemn warning and an exhortation to the church. What is it? I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. That's what they must do. Turn. If therefore thou shalt not watch, you don't, I will come unto thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour will I come upon thee. Well, these words are strikingly read, aren't they? We read them in the gospel and also... Paul writes to the Thessalonians how the Lord will come as a thief in the night, suddenly. But here he's going to come in personal judgment to the house of God in some way. Now Sardis, very interestingly, was an impregnable city upon a hill overlooking the Hermias Valley. And uh, the people, the history books tell us that the people were arrogant in that city because... They were full of confidence that they could never be overthrown. That hill with its perpendicular sides was almost unscalable. So greatly fortified it was. But the enemy came in 549 BC and then again in 218 BC and overtook Sardis. But suddenly, much later, in AD 17, The city was shaken by a major earthquake. There it is on the top of a hill 
and many lives were lost. That city was proud. The people here in the church are self-satisfied and boastful. They have a name. But the Lord says, I will come as a thief. The Lord can send an earthquake. The Lord can bring judgment. Think of what he did to Ananias and Sapphira, who thought that they could lie to the Holy Spirit. Now God brought sudden death to them. The exhortation of the church, be watchful and strengthen. Watch and pray against temptation. Watch against slothfulness. And strengthen that which remains. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, exercise thyself unto godliness. And the more you do, the stronger you will be. Turn away from this world. Continue in brotherly love, says Paul. Well, there are many things we can say. But lastly, seventhly, the Lord's promise of everlasting blessing. If the exhortation is obeyed. Notice the verse 5. He will give white raiment. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now this is very striking. and I hope that I can bring the picture to you. This church, remember, had a name. So did the Pharisees. So did the Sadducees. And they loved to be seen, didn't they? In their long flowing robes and apparel. Well, what did the Lord say about them? He said on the outside they whited sepulchres. But on the inside there is dead men's bones. And it seems that many of these people are just like that. And you know, you can go to a church with a good name and even a good ministry, but you can be dead yourself. You can be, have a good appearance. But friends, unless there is a love and a principle of obedience, really which comes out of love, you'll not walk with Christ in heaven. The Pharisees, we're told, when they prayed, they loved to pray before men. When they fasted, they loved to fast before men. When they gave, they gave before men. They gave their arms. They ashened their faces. When they fasted to make it look as if they were about to drop dead. But it was all outward. But you see, the person who overcomes these things... The person that is filled with the Spirit and there's life for God, there's devotion to God, there's commitment. If they overcome this deadness, of course, not by themselves. And that's the key. It's the key to the whole Christian life. Christ is the key, isn't he? Without me, you can do nothing. If we overcome. Now remember, we are more than conquerors. Through Christ, who loved us. What are they to do? They are to ask for the Spirit. Do you remember what the apostle were told? In Luke eleven thirteen, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? 
That is not given to unbelievers. Please read the context very carefully. That word was given to the disciples. And in measure, the Spirit will be given. Because there are times when we grieve the Holy Spirit, don't we? We grieve the Spirit of God and then we know His departing. We sing sometimes in that hymn that we'll sing tonight, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm, a heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Where is the blessedness that I knew when I first sought the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed, how sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. What are they to do? They are to ask Christ, the Father, that Christ who has the seven spirits will give it to them. Do we feel our deadness tonight? Do we feel like we're just pittering out? Well, repent. The exhortation is to you, to me, to repent. Strengthen that which is there but ask of Christ. He loves to bless. And he loves that we feel our need of him. Remember what he said? I am the vine, ye are the branches. Without me, you can't bear fruit. It's impossible. If ye abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me or which strengtheneth me. Paul says, if ye by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Sin must die in you, friends, and it must die in me, or we will grieve him and we will prove to be reprobates in the end if there's no dying. Paul, what does he say? He says, the children of God, as many as are led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They will be led. And what is the promise? The Lord says here, I will give him. He shall be clothed in white raiment. Put it this way, if, unless there is a righteousness worked out in the life, you have no claims on Christ's righteousness to clothe you. That's the important thing, isn't it? He is the righteousness of his people, but where there is imputed righteousness, there is what we call imparted righteousness in the life. That is so important. What else will he do? And some people get very worried here as we turn to these last, or the last verse, verse 5 and verse 6. These people, first of all, they must strive against the flesh, worldliness, and so to the Spirit. Now, what else will he do? I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Some people, as I say, get very worried when they read this. 
What's this blotting out of the Lamb's book of life or blotting out of the book of life? People get very worried here. Can a man lose his salvation? It can't be because the Lord said, didn't he? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And then he said, they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand and then neither the father's hand. So that's impossible. And Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans 8, that all whom God foreknew, he predestined. And all those whom he predestines, he finally glorifies. So what does he mean here? Well, we need to look at it from a positive angle. That's what we need to see here. Think of it. The Lord is not saying here that a man will be lost if he said, Father, none shall be lost in John 17. But here's the thing. When earthly people die, their names are blotted out from the records, aren't they? But the names of spiritual conquerors will never be blotted out. Look at it from the positive side. I will never blot out. If you overcome, it proves that I'm in you, that I've saved you, that I died for you, that I live for you. As your righteousness, and I live in you now to work a righteousness in you. You are mine, and you will never be blotted out. See, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It never can. He's saying this from a positive. He that overcomes, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, let me say it this way. Put it another way. God's children are always kept by the warnings. Hear what I'm saying? God's children are always kept by the warnings. What did Paul say? I labored, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And the very fact that you're hearing God's word, that's all part of God's grace. And what does he say? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. It's the Spirit. Christ, his Spirit, is speaking through this word. And they will hear. And they will overcome. And they will walk with him in white raiment. They will one day walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, there are so many parables we don't have time to say, but I'll just allude to them very quickly. We have, do we not? Our Lord's words there in Matthew 7, when he said, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father that's in heaven. See, if you're born again, you will do the will of the Father. Many will say, We did this in your name, that in your name. But I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And then we have, don't we, the parable of the talents. Remember, one man is given five, the other man two, and the other man one. The man with five, he invests all that he has. And the master comes back and he's rewarded. The same, the, the one with two, but the one with one, what did he say? Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, 
reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid, and went and hid the talent in the earth, and so on. He's making excuses. And that, my friends, is the lost person. He's always making excuses for his sins. I can't do it. But you know what? He never looks to Christ. He never casts himself and says, Lord, I'm such a weakling, I'm such a failure. Lord, help me. Hold me up, Lord. That's a Christian. A Christian will do that. But the man that is always making excuses will hear these words. Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, where there should be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. You see? Just because we're in the church doesn't mean to say we're of the church. But if we're in the church, we'll be reminded without Christ, we can do nothing. Friends, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. May we hear what he says. If we're lacking, he will give in great abundance. If we're waning, my friends, as Paul says there in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we can think or even ask. According to what? According to our power? Heaven forbid. According to the power that worketh in us. And that is by his Spirit. May God's Spirit rest and abide with you. And may our trust be in Jesus Christ. Amen.